Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be discussing Blue-Red in Lord of the Rings Limited. I think Blue-Red has gotten a lot of hype and attention from the uh, streamers and content creators recently, uh, with pretty good reason. It's a very good archetype. It is the second most drafted archetype behind Red-Black, and it has the uh, fourth best win rate. Kind of, but it's all pretty close uh, in the things that are close to and behind Black Red. And it has the second best win rate among top players, which might explain some of uh, why it's so popular among uh, content creators. And I'll get into a little bit about why I think that is. I've realized I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself, so I should stop now to uh, remind listeners that the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes for patrons of the appropriate level. So uh, getting back to it, strategically, I think blue-red is flexible in a similar way to how black-red is flexible. Uh, it can be strong at any sta- any or all stages of the game. Um, it has like good, cheap cards. Those could be aggressive and or controlling. Good card advantage good late game spells and late game trumps so it kind of just can do it all and the decks can be drafted pretty flexibly however i do think that you know some versions are more you know designed to be aggressive and some are more designed to be controlling but i typically think of blue red as a control deck but one that can like quickly turn the corner and end the game with like bursts of damage uh even in like the controlling builds um so it cares about the opponent's life total a lot more than um other control decks in general or in this format in particular even when you're like very controlling you do want to be watching that and you want to be like getting chip damage in where you can um because most builds of this deck have the ability to kind of kill out of nowhere with like some combination of Gandalf Sanction, which is the uh, uncommon blue-red three-mana spell that uh, does damage equal to the number of um, instants and sorceries in your graveyard to target creature, but like it has trample, so excess damage is dealt to the player. And then um, Dreadful as a Storm can represent four or five or eight uh, kind of surprise damage. Dreadful as the Storm is the uh, three-mana instant that uh, makes a creature a 5-5 five, five and tempts. And then you also have uh, Improvised Club, the two mana, one in a red, uh, sacrifice a creature artifact to, uh, to deal four damage. So th- those cards and uh, a few others make it easy for uh, Blue Red to get a kind of good burst of damage to end the game. While, as I said, I usually think of Blue Red as a control deck and mostly drafted that way, it can be drafted uh, strictly as a tempo deck instead. These two approaches have a lot in common, but they'll play somewhat differently. Uh, When I say they have a lot in common, what I mean is, for the most part, uh, the list of cards that are good in blue and red is fairly static, but the list of how highly precisely you prioritize them can change considerably depending on uh, which like game plans and synergies you're leaning into. I like to keep my number of creatures as low as possible, uh, generically through most of most drafts when I'm blue-red, but there's no real need to be strict about it. 
Um, you'll have cards that are better than more non-creatures you have most of the time, but they scale pretty linearly. So, you know, one extra creature, one, like one creature more or less doesn't change their value all that much. And yeah, so like I tried to rank just like my opinion of the top blue and red commons. And I realized that like it was hard and not very useful because um, just like precisely what you're trying to do can really radically shift uh, the rankings of uh, the top commons. If you have cards that care about your spell count, Hithlane Knots, uh, one in a blue instant uh, scry one tap creature, and Lorien Revealed, the blue uh, island cycler or five mana draw three spell, are a lot better. And then if Lorien Revealed is better, you're more likely to have more of them. The more of that kind of card draw you want, the more like cheap one for one interaction you want. So the more you want cards like whatever smite, one in a red, deal three, exile the thing that it kills, and Glorious Gale, and uh, Isolation of Orthanc, the uh, four mana instant that puts a creature second from the top. All, all of those kinds of cards get better when you have more Lorien revealed, which, you know, is more likely to be something like all, all of that stuff kind of goes together into like a spell count matters control kind of package. The primary alternate line, like the other uh, popular package that makes sense to pursue is more tempt heavy, uh, which is going to air a little bit more aggressive. And the more aggressive you are, the more you want tempt. The more tempt you have, the more aggressive you want to be because those things play together well because of tempt's contributions to uh, your ability to push damage by making evasive creatures and uh, off of the um, fourth stage of the ring. And then also the blue and red cards that tempt you are a little bit more aggressively slanted, a little more tempo-oriented. When you think about things like a 1-1 Menace or a Bounce spell or like the Horses at Uncommon, these are all cards that are a little more a little more tempo-focused. Um, and also, once you start playing those Rohirrim cards, the red creatures that tempt you, you're starting to prioritize cards that are not spells. So your spell synergy stuff is getting a little bit weaker to pursue this like more aggressive tempt plan. So once you start going down the aggressive tempt line, then cards like Dreadful is the Storm and Soothing of Smeagol, the two mana bounce spell that tempts, and uh, Breaking the Fellowship, the two mana, uh, one of their creatures damages another one of their creatures and the ring tempts you, cards all get better. So that deck is a little more proactive and a lot heavier on ring tempt and then heavier on creatures to have things to do the ring tempt stuff with. So you can kind of see how uh, the cards start to diverge a little in terms of where you want them. All of that, I think, is what really explains the higher win rate among top players is just the fact that like what you're looking for is so flexible but i think pretty subtly flexible like the fact that i really can't give you like a top five commons list or really come close to doing it because you know there are 15 commons maybe that could be in the top five depending on what your deck is trying to do specifically that also makes you know general advice like i would generally try to give in this podcast somewhat difficult but 
Obviously, I'm not giving up on it. So some things about how I personally approach this situation and uh, drafting this archetype. I like to play a lot of cantrips, uh, stuff like Hithlane Knots, Quarrel's End, uh, which is the three mana discard a card, draw two cards, make a human, birthday escape, the one mana draw a card, ring tempts you, and even Lembus, the uh, artifact food that uh, scries one and draws a card and shuffles into your deck when it leaves the battlefield, um, or goes to the graveyard from the battlefield. Because I play all that stuff, I draw a lot of extra cards, and when you're playing a card that replaces itself for not a lot of mana, you run into a danger that some portion of the cards that you're drawing are lands. And so these cards that you kind of put into like spell slots in your deck uh, become lands. And then you um, flood out because not every spell is actually functioning as a spell. Some portion of them are functioning as lands. So to address that concern, I like to uh, highly prioritize the land cycling cards and then just cut lands one for one for those land cyclers. And then uh, some portion of these extra lands that I draw into are just good late game spells that I can cast. So my goal is to play 17 lands plus land cyclers, but I want to, you know, have as many land cyclers as I can so that I have significantly fewer actual lands in my deck than that, which, um, you know, both means that the lands that I'm drawing late are sometimes spells and also the thinning that happens earlier from cycling those to pull out lands out of my deck helps to decrease the odds that i'm cycling into a land instead of cycling into a spell the more spells you have that cantrip so these kinds of cards that i was talking about wanting to play the better cards like Erebor Flamesmith, the uh, one in red, two one that does damage to your opponent when you play a spell, and Fiery Inscription, the uncommon enchantment that uh, does two damage to your opponent whenever you play a spell and tempts you when it enters. Th those are both a lot better the more cantrips you have. And in fact, I think number of cantrips you have really overall matters more than your raw spell count in terms of thinking about how good those cards are because what you're really looking to do with them is chain several casts together. So I think a lot of people might just count how many total instants and sorceries they have to evaluate how strong cards like Flamesmith and Fiery Inscription and even Gandalf Sanction are, but um, that doesn't really give you the whole picture because what matters is not how many are in your deck, what matters is how many of them you see per game. And so... The more cantrips you have, and also the more you're like rummaging off of or looting off the ring tempting you, uh, the more these cards are going to end up getting cast and or end up in your graveyard. So you don't you do really want to think about your card flow more than just your raw spell count when you're counting all of those like spell counting things and spell trigger things. Swarming of Moria, that's the one or two in a red sorcery, uh, a mass to make a treasure is pretty bad, I think, unless you're splashing. I mostly don't like it unless I'm trying to play Mouth of Sauron specifically because Swarming of Moria curves into Mouth so well because uh, it both gives you the missing color and gives you five mana on turn four so that you can cast Mouth and also means that you already have an army in play, which usually you don't want when you're amassing because generally making another creature is better than making a creature bigger. But 
the haste functionality uh, where that army that was already in play that was a 2-2 now gets bigger and can attack immediately lets you just put a lot of pressure on your opponent when on turn 4 you're making a 3-4 and also growing the creature that you played the previous turn. So that, that can give you some really like good explosive draws. I get, you could also play Swarming of Moria if you have some other splash. The other best one I could think of is just actual Sauron, the mythic. Um, but uh, for the most part, I would prefer to fuel this in other ways. Improvised Club, again, the four mana or two mana for damage instant that asks you to sacrifice a creature artifact to cast it is pretty good if you uh, are making some number of tokens, which happens fairly often with your uh, reasonably common amass one spells in blue and your humans from Rally the Hornburg. Uh, that's the instant that makes two one one humans and gives your humans haste and quarrels end. So if you have a bunch of that stuff, it's not hard to have a 1-1 that you can sacrifice to the club, making the club pretty reasonable. If I think that I'm going to be playing one or more clubs, then I want to start prioritizing Lembus and Wizard's Rockets. Uh, Wizard's Rockets is the one mana artifact that enters tapped and draws a card when it dies, and um, you can pay X and sacrifice it to uh, filter mana and other colors. Uh, both Lembus and Wizard's Rockets can be sacrificed to improvise club um, to make the uh, drawback of the club uh, relatively painless. I only liked the Tempt creatures, the Rohirrim Lancer and Relentless Rohirrim, if I have a lot of Tempt. Uh, otherwise, I try to avoid them. And I uh, typically don't look to play other creatures like Battle Scarred Goblin, the 2-mana two 2-2 two -two that does the damage to uh, any creature that blocks it, or Herodrim Spearmaster, the 2-3 Reach that pumps something, or War Beast of Gorgoroth, um, the 5-mana uh, 5-4 five five that um, makes you a mass 2 whenever a creature with power 4 or greater dies. Just a lot of like you know mid-tier playable red creatures that I'm not looking to put in my blue-red decks for the most part. If one of them ends up in my deck because I'm a little short, it's not that big of a deal, but I'm not going to prioritize any of those cards. Similarly in blue, I actively want Pelagreer Survivor, the one in a blue 1-3 that taps for a mana of any color that can only be used to play instants and sorceries and can mill the opponent. Its value changes a little bit depending on how many spells I have, but it's always going to be pretty good, so more realistically, what actually changes is the value of spells as a function of how many survivors I have. And specifically, four and five mana spells get a lot better than they would otherwise be if I have two or more survivors. And uh, just like with uh, red creatures, I'm trying to avoid all the other blue common creatures. You know, if you have to play a Gravehaven's Navigator, that's the three mana, three, two, scry one on ETB, or an Ithilian Kingfisher, that's the three mana, two, one flyer that draws a card when it dies. Again, not the end of the world, but uh, I'm really looking to uh, minimize my creatures in both blue and red. And that applies across strategies, with the sole exception of the things that tempt I want more if I have a tempt deck. But even when I want to have a board presence, I want to create that board presence through instants and sorceries rather than through creature cards where possible.
I personally tend to draft with a control bias uh, that makes me prefer Glorious Gale to most other blue commons, especially early in the draft. I assume that's the way I'm going to lean. But if you're an aggressive temp deck, you would want something like Soothing of Smeagol more than you would want uh, Glorious Gale by quite a bit. Which is interesting because from my perspective, in most of my blue decks, Glorious Gale is one of the best blue commons, whereas Soothing of Smeagol is a card that I would prefer not to have in my deck. It's not unplayable, but you know it, it's on the level of like a Greyhaven's Navigator or a Kingfisher type card in the control decks. Whereas um, in the Tempt Heavy Aggressive decks, it really is one of the top blue commons. So... And then similarly, uh, in the control deck, Glorious Gale is one of the best, but in the um, aggressive temp-heavy deck, uh, Glorious Gale is, you know, a fringe playable. Like, you'll you'll put one in your deck if you have to, but it's not really contributing to your game plan, and, you know, you, you could really take it or leave it. So, you, again, you just really, really need to think about what your deck's trying to do. Gandalf Sanction is a card that I like a lot. It's very good in the spell-heavy control decks. It offers a nice kind of inevitability that um, gives me a pretty safe feeling. But to be clear, uh, it is not... Like, the strongest blue-red gold uncommon is Gandalf, not Gandalf... Or, sorry, Bilbo, not Gandalf Sanction. Um, Bilbo is incredible. Uh, Bilbo is a good reason to be more of the Tempt deck, but Bilbo is going to be great in any blue and red deck. There are a lot of other commons that are also generally better even in blue and red than Gandalf Sanction. Blue and red both have uh, great uncommons um, kind of across the board. Red, almost all of red's uncommons are fantastic with like two-ish exceptions, but blue also has some really, really good uncommons. So like regardless of whether you can table Gandalf Sanction, so one of the advantages to passing Gandalf Sanction for another great uncommon is that you might table the Gandalf Sanction. Uh, but there are a lot of cards that even if you can't table the Gandalf Sanction, a lot of blue-red decks would rather have something like Eomer of the Riddlemark. That's the five mana, five, four haste that makes a human when it attacks if you have the biggest guy, which you do because he has five power. Fearfire Foes, the um, X spell that does damage to all of their other things. Sauron's Trickery, the Counterspell that amasses one, the Bath Song, that's the Saga that draw two, discard one, draw two, discard one, uh, reshuffle whatever you want from your graveyard into your library. Bilbo, Ranger's Firebrand is the sorcery that does two damage and tempts. And then some that are a little bit more situational, depending on what your deck is, uh, Grishnak, Brash, Instigator, and Horses of Brunian are going to be better in more aggressive decks than Gandalf Sanction, whereas Gandalf Sanction is going to be better than them in some of the more controlling decks. Again, you know, there's a good amount of wiggle room with the uncommons, depending on what you're trying to do, but a lot of great uncommons around. If you've, you know, watched my stream or listened to the way that I talk about drafting uh, Blue-Red, for me, most of the time, Soothing of Smeagol and Horses of Brunian have not performed very well. Uh, I think that this is more of personal failure on my part than anything about the strength of those cards. And I really want to be very clear that like fixing this is not accomplished by prioritizing creatures more highly. Um, it's all about 
ranking the good cards relative to each other. It's not about changing which cards are fundamentally good. Um, and it's not just that the creatures don't contribute to the spell synergies that I'm looking for. It's that like the creatures in blue and red are mostly just fundamentally not very good cards. So you, you really want to make sure that you're building a cohesive deck, but that you're doing it using good cards. Where I prioritize these like reactive cards and card advantage, you could just as easily prioritize tempt cards and pressure and tempo stuff instead. I think a lot of that is just going to be a function of what kind of game you're comfortable playing. It would be it would be nice to say there there's like one of these decks is better than the other. Might be true. I don't have enough experience with like the different ways that you can approach it to know for sure. And they've all felt very powerful for me. I definitely think it comes down in part to, you know, the most powerful cards that you end up seeing. You know, you, you take a strong card early and you ask yourself which game plan it would prefer to be in. And then as you see other cards, you, you know, identify the best couple blue and red cards in the pack. And you ask yourself which of those best supports the game plan that the cards that you already have want to pursue. And, you know, you, you always have to be weighing the trade-off of, like, how much better would this card that I could take be if I switched my strategy a little? How much would that hurt the other cards? Like, where can I strategically pivot? Where do I want to strategically pivot? Where do I want to strategically focus? And those questions are difficult. That uh, This is an archetype that requires a good amount of uh, finesse and format familiarity and knowledge of yourself and your own card preferences to know how you're going to be, you know, if there are cards that you just really like in the more aggressive version or the more tempt the more tempting or the, the more controlling version, you know, whatever, whatever cards you like most, you need to think about like, if I see this card, like maybe I've had really good experiences with Soothing of Smeagol. And so I'm going to want to warp my deck around it if I see it in the middle of the pack. Knowing that you're likely to see that card and that when you see it, you'll want to lean into it is going to inform your probabilities of where your deck is going to end up when you're assessing earlier cards. And... Um, for that reason, I think you're often going to find that regardless of like what cards you're seeing in a particular draft, you're likely to tilt your deck one way or another. And for the most part, it's correct to plan for that and to lean into that and to draft it the way that you draft it. And I guess I would say... If you're struggling with uh, blue and red, if you don't feel like you're winning as much as the archetype should be winning, then you should really think about where you've been leaning, what you've been prioritizing, and whether you should investigate doing something different instead. You know, if you've been playing the controlling version and it's not working out for you, if you've been playing the tempting version and it's not working out for you, uh, maybe try, you know, reversing your prioritization within the best cards. Um, try to put yourself into leaning into the other strategy and see if that works better for you. But again, I think a lot of this stuff really is 
very personal in terms of you know what kinds of games you're comfortable playing and uh, what your kind of biases and intuitions are going to be both in terms of how you're going to play the games and also how you're going to prioritize cards that you see in future packs. So, you know, your pre- what is the correct pick presently depends both on your past picks, what you already have, as well as your future picks, uh, what other preferences you have that indicate what cards you're likely to end up with. And I think a lot of discussion about, you know, drafting and like what's the pick here and stuff uh, really glosses over the importance of the real ability that you have to anticipate future picks as a function of your own bias. So sometimes when I see a draft that's, you know, six picks in and someone's like, what's the pick here? And I'm like, well, for me, the pick here would be this, but I would never have the six cards that you have here because I don't prioritize those cards very highly. If I try to extrapolate the sort of person who would prefer, who would have these six cards based on their preferences, the right pick in this moment from these cards that you already have might be different than the right pick it is for me, given my preferences. Kind of a more general point, but uh, really something that I think warrants more consideration in general. Another question I often end up getting is about uh, splashing in any given archetype. Um, I think either version of this deck can splash. There's an argument. I don't think it's a very deep or complicated argument about which one is better at splashing. But, you know, the case could be made that the more tempt you have, the easier it is to splash because the extra looting that you're getting lets you discard splash cards that you can't cast or dig for the mana that you need, you know, whatever this situation calls for, lets you see more cards and splashing is easier when you see more cards. The other argument would be actually the controlling builds splash better because they play longer games, you see more cards the longer your game is, and also the controlling builds play more card drop, more scry, so, um, you know, the they might need to spend mana to get to see those extra cards, but on average, I do think they end up seeing more cards in the game than the aggressive version. So, you know, not surprisingly, as I'm always saying, splashing is better the more controlling you are. I think splashing is better in the controlling builds, but I think that, you know, if there are good payoffs, which do exist in the format, then, you know, most blue-red decks can splash which is you know not to say that they all should but it's certainly not something you want to be like writing off or trying to avoid when you're drafting blue red that basically wraps up my presentation and preparation here so um, i want to turn it over to twitch chat for uh, questions and continuing discussion on this and uh, while I'm waiting for that, I do want to thank the uh, newest patrons of the podcast. So thank you so much to Jeff, uh, High Contrast, and Ganiwo on the um, patroning. Um, really appreciate it. If anyone else is interested in uh, supporting the podcast, of course, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. How do you feel about splashing Torment of Gollum in the Blue-Red Spells version, just off stuff like Survivor and Swarming of Moria? Yeah, so if you have several survivors, then Torment of Gollum is a fantastic splash, 
the survivor is giving you kind of that like free access to black mana and also casting torment of golem on turn three is just so good you can also do it off of uh you know swarming of moria you do get that kind of like haste effect that i was talking about where this 2-2 that you played on turn three it turns out that was actually a 4-4 for the purposes of like getting damage in i'm less excited about you know playing the subpar card just to enable the torment of golem um but uh i do really like you know leaning on survivors as a way to splash and then being careful that your splash is just maybe land cycling creatures and instants and sorceries and you're not splashing like other creatures of that color um if you have enough treasure making which could come from um bilbo or gloin or uh mines of moria or just from uh swarming of moria and you have survivors then it is possible to splash without playing any basics of the splash color I think a lot of the time you might as well have one in case you can't stick a survivor or you don't get or want to be able to save a treasure or whatever. Like the first, you know, swamp that you put in your deck to cast the Torment of Golem is often not going to mess up your mana that much. But uh, yeah, I mean, Torment of Golem is a strong enough card to consider splashing in particular with Survivor because Survivor noticeably lowers the barrier to entry to splashing an instant or sorcery relative to splashing a creature. How do you value Flamesmith in blue-red? I've been down on the card uh, ever since Loving Survivor. Yeah, I think Flamesmith is playable, not great. You know, I'll often but not always prefer it to the, like, Battlescarred Goblin, Spearmaster, Warbeast-type creatures, but not even that much and not even consistently. If your deck is... Like, really, there are decks that really lean into the, like, um, play a bunch of cantrips and then your opponent's dead style of gameplay. I think, uh, you know, if you have um, Inscription of the Ring and Gandalf Sanction, those would be the cards that would really lean you, lead you down that path, where then you really want to prioritize, like, as many, like, Hithlane Knots and Birthday Escapes. Like, any of those cantrips that you can get are going to be amazing in that deck. Um and then uh, the Flamesmiths are a reasonable support for that deck, but you still want to be like taking any cantrip spells over them in the draft. Bilbo is obviously great in any deck that can play it, but if you've taken it first, you tend to uh, push more into the temp slash tempo style, or how does having Bilbo inform a control uh, version build? Um, yeah, I mean, Bilbo gives you such a great jump on the ring um that it makes it really easy to get to like stage four um which makes like leaning into uh the like really aggressive ring stuff a lot better um so i, I do think that an early bilbo should pretty strongly motivate you to you know be like more highly valuing soothing of smeagles and stuff like that um so i think you know there's kind of a like fork right between bilbo and gandalf sanction as like two very strong blue-red cards that are really going to, like, put you in blue-red, and um, they're going to pull you in different directions. Obviously, you know, sometimes you're going to have both because blue-red's open, and so you end up, like, getting both of them, but 
I think they're both cards that are pretty reasonable to take early and leaning into spells when you take sanction early or leaning into tempt when you take Bilbo early makes a lot of sense to me. Also thinking about it, you know, I said that I typically lean into the like spells matter stuff. I also think that I just see a lot more Gandalf sanctions in my drafts than I see Bilbo's, which makes sense because Bilbo's the stronger card, but sanction is good enough that I'm willing to like jump into blue red for it. Um, so I end up getting moved into blue red by sanction more often than I get moved into blue red by Bilbo just because sanction goes later and either one of them would do that for me. If Sanction shows up early, remember uh, Bilbo can get that early jump to uh, ring temp two to really push the looting. Um, so yeah, it, it is true that you know Bilbo by itself does really want, uh, like even though Bilbo kind of like solves temptation alone, when you first play it, it only gives you one tempt and having a second tempt early for Bilbo to get the looting going right away is definitely really big. Um, which is, again, part of why an early Bilbo should put you so strongly into Tempt. So, a question about whether blue red can, a blue-red deck can work if it doesn't have Fiery Inscription or Survivors? Yes, of course. There's no single card that blue-red needs. Uh, the, the, while there are a lot of commons that I want to avoid, uh, the number of cards that I'm looking to play is pretty deep, and... Um, I don't think there's like a single card that any blue-red strategy depends on. Yes, it can still work, regardless of uh, particular cards you don't have. It's just a matter of figuring out a plan and uh, figuring out how, you know, whatever you, cards you have are going to support that plan. There's a question about whether I can talk more about my experience with horses, which is incredibly limited. Um, I know that the card is good, but my preferences are so strongly for the um, controlling version that I haven't really been prioritizing or playing it. And I think when I did force myself to try playing it, it was mostly pretty bad. And I mostly ended up like discarding it to like ring tempt rummaging or looting or uh, other things which is similar to the experience that I've personally had with Susan of Smeagol. I, I really, like, I, I am absolutely sure that those cards are good in decks that I don't draft, but the decks that I do draft really are very unlikely to want them. Further suggested that it seems like a great fit for the control version, so why do I think it's not working well in my decks? I guess I disagree with the implication that it's good a good fit for the controlling version. Um, it can reset a board to give you time if you're under a lot of pressure and it can answer a large mass army which can theoretically be a problem for you however it does you know kind of take a whole turn to do that and um i haven't really found myself in a place where like spending my turn bouncing two things meaningfully affects my ability to catch up and in general, I've preferred just like having a removal spell or a knots to kind of like buy that time to like turn the corner there. Where I think it really shines is when you're aggressive and bouncing those two things isn't just about like, you know, kind of fogging to get yourself a turn to stabilize. And it's about kind of changing the whole flow 
of the tempo of the game in terms of like attacking and blocking and pushing a bunch of damage and uh, really getting value out of that extra tempt to, um, you know, pick up the ring again if you don't currently have a ring bearer or uh, to get to another stage, they can be pretty important. So the follow-up question, do I think um, horses doesn't really have a place in more controlling decks? Uh, again, I think it's a strong card. So a lot of, you know, for the most part, what I'm talking about is just changing how you prioritize from among cards that are fundamentally playable. I don't think it's like that bad if you have to put a horses in a controlling deck. I just think that it shouldn't be drafted as a premium card the way that it would be in an aggressive deck. And if you're not prioritizing in that way, you're going to be a lot less likely to have or to play it to begin with. And, you know, when you do play it, it's not going to perform as well, which means that you're going to end up discarding it more often, stuff like that. Obviously, between all the scry that you have and uh, some of the, like, discard to draw stuff, having a highly situational card like that and a card that can save you against, like, big mass armies and stuff isn't a bad place to be because the upside on the card is very high. It's very situational, so um, the card selection really forgives having it if it's, like, generally off-plan but can be great. But um, my experience when I've tried playing it is that more often than not, it's not a card that I'm looking for in the controlling builds. Do I think Survivor is equally good in both kinds of blue-red decks? I wouldn't say equally. I think that, you know, the range on how good Survivor is changes considerably based on, you know, whether you have the sort of deck where you can tap it for mana every turn or not, which is going to be a function of both how many expensive spells and also how many cantrips you have, and um, also how many creatures. Uh, and so if you're playing, like, the more aggressive version... Uh, that's playing more creatures so that you can play the like Rohirrim Lancer and Relentless Rohirrim, that's going to make the Survivor a little bit worse. The fact that the Survivor isn't great at pushing early damage is going to make it a little bit worse. It's a reasonable ring bearer, but if you put a ring on it and start attacking with it, then you're not also tapping it for mana, so you're not really getting the most out of your card. I think it can be good in decks that are trying to do, you know, what, whatever they're trying to do, but there are certainly some decks it's a lot better in than others, and that more often it's uh, better, relatively speaking, in the control decks than the aggressive decks. So I think I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, uh, everyone who uh, watched live and asked questions in particular to you know help make sure the podcast covers everything it needs to. We are still... Uh, very much in the middle of Lord of the Rings as the featured set. So I'll be back next week with another archetype. And until uh, then, uh, happy drafting, and I'll see you next week. Uh, bye for now. Prepare for light speed.